Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Coinbase and Kraken hit with investigations. All eyes on the Fed, a regulatory scramble. Welcome to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing, freshly rebranded today. It's not just the name that will be changing on the show in days to come. Let us know what you want to hear about, what stories from the crypto space you most want us to deep dive into. Send us your thoughts, comments, and questions in the chat. Today, we will discuss the broader macro environment for crypto, as well as some interesting and potentially precedent-setting legal battles. I'm Ash Bennington, and I'm joined today by David Nage, Portfolio Manager at ARCA, and Ari Redbird, Head of Legal and Government Affairs at TRM Labs. Let's get right into the price action so we can get a sense of what's happening right now in these markets. Bitcoin is stable around 21,000 uh, after the recent rallies started fizzling. It remains down about, well, about 10% on the week, according to Coin Market, market Cap. Uh, Ethereum is once again outperforming Bitcoin, rising a little over 6% in the last 24 hours. Lots of talk about the merge, the widely anticipated move for Ethereum from proof of work to proof of stake, uh, and obviously significant changes underneath the surface happening with that. It's been the primary driver of, of ETH's recent price surge. We'll do a deep dive on it on Crypto Daily Briefing in the coming weeks. Uh, many in the crypto space are wondering whether we have hit bottom or if there's another big sell-off around the corner. A catalyst for it could be today's Fed decision. It's widely expected that the Fed will hike interest rates by 75 basis points, but a historic 100 basis point rate hike is not completely off the table. Look, we've got a lot of stories right now that are developing in the legal sphere, each one of them very different in its own right. Uh, first, stories involving Coinbase parallel complaints filed, a criminal complaint by DOJ and a complaint from SEC. Uh, and also, these, this is revolving around an insider trading case uh, at Coinbase, but the case has broader implications than just the allegations of wrongdoing uh, by the co-conspirators, or I should say the alleged co-conspirators in that case. Second, we have a story about Kraken and international sanctions. And third, a story about being reported by Coinbase, uh, excuse me, by Coindesk and The Block, that a new draft of stablecoin regulation is coming. Let's bring in Ari. Ari, you have exactly the background we'd most like to talk to uh, when we're thinking about stories like this. Uh, you're head of legal and government affairs at TRM Labs. Uh, and Prior, you were an assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia and a senior advisor to the Undersecretary uh, for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. A lot of relevant experience here. Ari, how would you characterize what's happening uh, in some of these cases? Let's start with Coinbase. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's just a really extraordinary moment. I mean, we, we've seen so much action from really DOJ and then to only a slightly lesser extent SEC over the last uh, two weeks. But sort of starting with the situation with Coinbase, and really, to be clear, this is not a Coinbase situation, right? What you had here is you have an individual uh, that was charged with uh, wire fraud by the U.S. Department of Justice. And stepping back for a moment, it really is important to sort of take these cases separately. So 
So, right. so starting sort of with the with the Department of Justice case, the criminal prosecution. Um, basically, what has been happened here is an individual who was working at Coinbase has been charged uh, with wire fraud for using insider information to essentially trade on uh, tokens that he knew were going to be listed um, on on the on the exchange. Um, obviously, when a coin is listed by Coinbase, the coin tends to go up in value, and he traded on having that information uh, with with co-conspirators. That is a criminal prosecution. It doesn't matter what the sort of definition of that token is, whether it's a commodity or a security or 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 a currency or or really anything else. It's the activity, the criminal activity here, wire fraud, that is at issue. And the Department of Justice is going to have to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt that they had this access to this information, that they used this information, um, and ultimately traded on it for for a profit. Uh, Harry, is, it, is it fair to say, yeah. obviously, uh, here in the United States, all uh, these are allegations, innocent until proven guilty. But when you read the the facts associated with that case, you know, my my first take on it was, if this were a, a case where someone was going to being charged, for example, an employee at Goldman Sachs for a U.S. security, this sounds like precisely the kind of conduct that in that hypothetical that I've just set up would likely be charged as insider trading. Now, they're not securities. So tell us a little bit about what you were uh, alluding to earlier about how these have been charged under wire fraud statutes. Yeah, no, a absolutely. And, and, you know, look, I, I spent 11 years as a federal prosecutor at the Department of Justice. Um, it, it is, there's nothing more important than to say that everything in there in an indictment is an allegation and only an allegation. Right. That said, these are pretty strong allegations. And I think one of the sort of unique things about this case and really about the nature of crypto and blockchain is that, you know, a lot, you know arguably this case came from a tweet. You had a sort of Twitter sleuth uh, who was sort of watching transactions and saw a lot of activity, uh, sort of uh, sh uh, a shocking amount of activity on some of these coins that were going to be listed uh, by Coinbase right pri immediately prior to the event um, and, and put it on Twitter, right? right? That doesn't happen in traditional in the traditional world. Uh, we don't have visibility on financial flows the way we do in crypto. And that's really also what makes the case so strong, right? You can actually see the wallet addresses where these funds load, uh, Coinbase likely had information on those wallet addresses in the form of know your customer information and is able to ultimately work with law enforcement to provide that type of information. So it's, it's, it's you know, th these cases are very strong when it comes to cryptocurrency because you are able to take that alphanumeric address and watch the flow right. go in and out of that address. And that's what really makes these allegations very strong. Sort of pivoting slightly uh, to sort of your question, and that is, um, look, the, the SEC case is very different. Um, you know, you don't have the same standard, um, but the SEC also has to prove something very different when it comes to insider trading. And it has to prove that each of the assets that were traded were securities. Um, and essentially, what does that mean? And, and it's important because if they are not securities, if they're commodities or something else, then the SEC doesn't have jurisdiction over those tokens. And Harry, what, this split yeah. in, in many ways really comes to the core of the implications for this case. On the one hand, we have some individuals who've been accused but not convicted uh, of some type of criminal conduct. But on the other, this implication that potentially could be much broader about whether or not digital assets that are being traded uh, on Coinbase are, in fact, securities. A absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. You know, when I was a prosecutor, you know, it was it was literally misconduct to say to a jury, make a statement, send a message. OK, you, you don't do that. In this case against these co-conspirators, the U.S. Department of Justice, the federal prosecutors are involved, are focused on only their case. They are only looking at those individuals and their conduct. 
it's different when it comes to regulators. The SEC is very much trying to send a message here. And what it's saying here is, look, there are certain uh, crypto assets, uh, tokens, that we believe are securities. And we're right. going to prove that through sort of this enforcement action. And that's why it's going to have that sort of reverberations or re repercussions potentially uh, because, hey, you know, there are other tokens here that are not named but have some of the similar qualities to these. Uh, you know, I think we're going to sort of get maybe potentially to, to a point where um, we're going to consider, you know, actually have definitions. Are these securities right. or, or are they not? Um, you know, and that's the broader implication. That's the broader implication. Absolutely. And, and that's what the SEC is going to have to show here. But I will say it's, it, one thing that's really important is, we, you know, crypto moves faster than anything we've ever seen in our lifetimes. <laughs> but, but the courts do not. <laughs> and uh, and, and this, is, this is not going to be something we're going to have answers for in the coming days, weeks, or, or potentially even months. There's a case currently pending uh, involving uh, Ripple and its asset XRP, uh, which, uh, again, a lot of the same kind of questions around that, is it or is not a security? Uh, just because that case has been pending longer, we may have some get some insights into ultimately that sooner than this case. But this case is going to take some time. There's legislation that, that you know, is, is sort of out there in the world that may potentially that has some implications on ultimately how this is decided. But one thing that you just sort of take away that's just still so interesting about these court cases is at least the SEC case is going to come down to a 1946 Supreme Court decision that interpreted 1933 and 1934 uh, securities law. And this what is the that, Howey test that we is, hear so this much is, about. This is the Howey test. And it's so important, but also so interesting. And, you know, like, again, you know, I'm a lawyer, so I like to geek out on this stuff. But look, uh, Howey was about uh, investors in an orange grove. OK. And what it really said is, look, the, those investment contracts in that orange grove were securities because you guys aren't farmers. You needed a third party to ultimately create the result for you. And that's really what an investment contract is. It's, is a third-party promoter ultimately responsible for the profits or or or, or not profits? Uh, Harry, and, lots to cover here, but I want to make sure we're able to bring in David in a few absolutely. minutes. Absolutely. Uh, I just wanted to ask one other question as we teed up these cases. 60 seconds or less, what's happening? And by the way, we should, as you said at the top of the show, uh, obviously these are all very different cases, very separate. In the case of the Coinbest case, we've got the, uh, we've got the actual text from the Southern District of New York that we can rely on for their press release. But there are also this, this reporting from sources saying uh, that there is an investigation going on into Kraken. Talk a little bit briefly, if you could, about what is at stake in terms of these sanctions regimes and why this could be, highlight could be, problematic for Kraken. Sure. And again, like this is just, this is even below allegations, right? This is just sort of, um, you know, sources are reporting. But I think, you know, what, what this really just shows, and I think it's in a broader conversation, and that is the Office of Foreign Asset Control, OFAC, which is part of the U.S. Treasury Department, they're the sanctions regulator, is very, very focused on digital assets and digital asset service providers. Um, they, there's, there's a guidance from October of, uh, of last year that really delves into what is the expectation for a cryptocurrency business when it comes to mitigating the risk of sanctions, using blockchain analytics tools, using geolocation, having compliance professionals in place. These, uh, and, and, and it's so important because there are places in the world, Iran, North Korea, Sudan, um, you know, uh, Cuba, where you are absolutely not allowed to transact with any individual or entity in that location. Right. So what is really required today from OFAC, from Treasury, is that if you're a crypto business, it doesn't matter who you are, Kraken or, or anybody else, you have to mitigate the risk 
of individuals or entities transacting with you from those jurisdictions. And they're, what, what this shows, if anything else, if nothing else, is that they're taking that, that obligation very seriously and will potentially, are, are potentially investigating uh, to bring enforcement actions. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, important points there, and obviously much more to come on this story, uh, the general framework and what's happening with Kraken both. I wanted to bring in David Nage. David, uh, you've heard these conversations that uh, Ari and I have been having. Obviously, some significant uh, questions, significant potential legal cases here and existing legal cases. You're a venture capitalist. Talk a little bit about what the implications that you see are for markets and price action around cases like this. I think first and foremost, I think about navigation. I'm about to take a two hour drive and I'm gonna rely on my GPS. And my GPS is going to tell me where there's traffic and where there's an accident. It's going to give me guidance on where I need to go to get to my destination the fastest, the most expedient way possible. And I think of regulation, I think a policy that we're starting to see right now in the same vein is that this is giving us GPS for the future. For the founders out there that are building new innovation, new businesses, new companies in digital assets, this is incredibly important for them because this will give them guidance for the future. What we've seen from the venture perspective, last year you saw a predominance of raises that were SAFs, simple agreements for future tokens. What you've seen now uh, due to the uh, market downturn is you've seen a change to what we call safes. That's what Y Combinator fashioned a few years ago plus warrants. Warrants are for tokens to be distributed in the future. Again, the, the vision here and the mission here is to decentralize and distribute and to further incentivize those that are participating in these, in these networks. And so having a warrant basically you know, is a promissory for future delivery of a token. This is important again, because for founders, they will have some patterns, some guidance, some GPS, if you will, on what is going to be allowed and permissible and what's not going to be. And so this is a fantastic time for them to be able to have that discovery, have that information, and be able to really do things that are in a regulatory and legal compliant way. Obviously, lots of news flow today. Uh, we mentioned at the top of the show the Fed hike uh, that is alleged to be forthcoming today, pricing showing 75 basis points or thereabouts in terms of what overnight index swaps are showing. How do you think about what's happening right now in monetary policy relative to price action? Obviously, we should say if you look at a correlation between, say, the NASDAQ 100 and the cryptocurrency constellation broadly, you see a great deal of correlation there. How are you thinking about that monetary policy more broadly and its implications for crypto asset prices? I've been around markets long enough where I know the market likes to know and is actually very keen to know what's going to happen in the future as regards to policy. Markets become very volatile when the market participants don't have a very good sense of what the Fed is going to do. And so I think what we've seen over the last few quarters is there's been a slight imbalance between what the Fed is doing and what the market believes it's going to do. Um, I think you saw the 75 basis point move uh, last time around uh, as a positive. It fell in line with what the market thought was going to happen. 
Um, there were those that thought that a hundred basis point um, move was actually more justified that let's just take the bandaid off and let's just, you know, get to the point of neutrality. This next 75 basis point shift that we see it today uh, brings the fence bet, uh, the fence, uh, the benchmark to two and a half, uh, two and a quarter percent uh, or about two and a half percent uh, to the target range, which is equaling the estimate of the neutral rate that, you know, neither stimulates nor restricts growth. So I, I think we're getting to a point where you know, the market is starting to believe that this may be the last bout. Um, if you're you know, taking medicine, this may be your last bout of an antibiotics. You know, the infection may be coming to a close. Um, and we're starting to see your sentiment out there that market participants think that a 50 basis point shift may happen next time around. And you might start seeing a bit of a slowdown in terms of that. Um, there's definitely an effect out there. Um, I think it's really interesting that most market participants out there, most sentiment I read out there, is not taking into account that there's a bit of a bifurcation. In terms of the last two and a half years, people around the world have been effectively in lockdown in various forms. Uh, they've been in their houses, their apartments. They haven't been able to freely roam around. They haven't been able to travel. They haven't been able to enjoy lifestyles that they're used to. And when the vaccine started to be rolled out and people started obviously getting uh, immunized, you started to see this pent up demand for going out and travel. And you started to see that now with, you know, airline rates with, you know, obviously seat uh, occupancies at all time highs. You're starting to see this pent up demand that's still coming in. And so it's just, there's a bit of a dichotomy where you have the Fed on one side basically trying to squash this new demand and you have all these people in the world that are trying to go out and enjoy themselves for the first time in two years. And so I, I think we're in a really interesting point in time for that. As it relates to markets, as I said, again, markets really are keyed up on visibility and transparency. They wanna know what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And we've seen time and time again over the last you know, few cycles here with this new Fed with Powell, that there's been a bit of a disturbance there. They haven't really been lockstep as they used to have with, with Greenspan and others before. Well, you know, it's interesting. You bring up this core paradox of what's happening right now uh, with expectations on interest rates. So one of the things that I think is most intriguing about this state that we're in today, if you get the pricing of overnight index swaps and you can see something uh, similar in the structure of the uh, of the curve going forward, what you see is this expectation that we're going to reach a terminal rate of about uh, 3 to 3.25% uh, on the federal funds rate. And then you start seeing the expectation of rate cuts after that. And this is the, the challenge that we talk about uh, across capital markets today, uh, which is this Scylla and Charybdis that the Fed is caught between. On the one hand, you have uh, 9 plus percent CPI prints. And on the other, you have indicators beginning to show uh, recession in the economy. So this challenge that you have, where you have inflation being way high, sky high, 40 year highs. And on the second, you have this obvious slowing based on the data that we're seeing. We had a negative uh, print in terms of the contraction of GDP from the prior quarter. How do you balance this out? Because it is a, a really sort of uh, almost a, a world where you see these uh, like the, the immovable force and the unstoppable object butting heads. I, I think that's a question to be answered. It's um, one that I wish I had the answer to right now. You know, some of the things that we look at, you know, for instance, there's about $5 trillion uh, that consumers have on the sideline. I think that's according to CNBC. Uh, they recently reported that uh, a few months ago. We see that there's just a tremendous amount of capital on the sidelines. And that's also for the investors out there. 
Uh, we see that. I know you're going to talk about stable coins as well, too. We see an yeah. immense amount of stable coins on the sidelines as well. And so we see a tremendous amount of capital on the sidelines waiting for visibility. Um, they don't want to be sitting in cash. And so you're starting to see things like REITs and you're starting to see you know, real estate markets. Um, even though there's been real estate markets that have been incredibly hot, when you're looking at a market as such today, when you have a CPI print of 9.1 and when you're dealing with you know, some of the factors that we just talked about, there's not a lot of places to go for the investor. Um, there's always the seek for, for yield, if you will, from the institutional investor or the retail investor, and there's not a, pla- a lot of places to go. And so, you know, again, you're dealing with this dichotomy where you have investor sentiment, which is dissipating uh, due to the, the policies being put in place in the last few quarters. But yet again, you also have a tremendous amount of capital on the sidelines waiting to come in. As it relates to the private markets within digital assets, this is also true. Uh, you have more billion-dollar funds that have been earmarked for venture and digital assets now than you ever have in the history of the entire asset class. Um, and they are looking to deploy that capital because most of them have mandates to deploy that capital within a rational period of time. And so, you know, again, you have this wall of capital out there that is looking for deployment, is looking for the opportunities in an environment which is, you know, as we've talked about, not the best environment for investor sentiment right now. Right. Uh, you, you mentioned stablecoins. We're going to touch on that in just one second here. But talking of investor sentiment, uh, Ben Whitby recently spoke with Luke Stryers here on Real Vision, uh, this chief commercial officer at Deribit. Uh, let's take a look at that clip. When Bitcoin reached $60,000 or sixty-five, the open interest reached $21 billion, which is an incredible amount wow. of uh, notional exposure. Yeah. And That's now- yeah, so now we are um, down to one third. However, the open interest is uh, is still around ten billion. So we've uh, reduced uh, by fifty percent the notion of open interest, while uh, the price is reduced um, by sixty-seven percent. So relatively, we have grown, and we still keep on growing. So if you look at contracts, so you can look at open interest two ways: one is dollars, and the other one is contracts. Um, and if you look at contracts, we we keep on growing. So. Even though nowadays, uh, and I'm not sure when this will be aired, but in 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 June, July, uh, 2022, uh, there's there's been a lot of uh, fear and, and and problems. Even in this uh, this state, while uh, let's say the three arrows carnage uh, is still fresh, um, the open interest keeps growing. So people are not, or at least from their orbit side, not leaving the market, not leaving or closing down positions. Uh, they keep on expanding them. So you can watch that full interview on the Real Vision crypto platform. Uh, Luke is making the case that despite the declines in price, uh, the open interest, that's the the, the measure uh, of total notional amount outstanding and the derivatives has remained uh, relatively stable. Uh, what, let me ask you this as we, as we transition out of that, uh, David, give us a sense of what you think uh, is happening in terms of the interest, in terms of the sentiment, uh, not specifically what Luke was talking to, but a little bit more broadly. Sure. And I can reference some of the data that we've been looking at from the venture perspective. And I think it's really telling about what we're seeing right now. So if we look at the same time last year, the same time last year, we saw about 374 deals that were completed in the private markets, totally an aggregate of about $6.5 billion. This time uh, in Q2 of 2022, there were 656 deals completed with over $15 billion uh, allocated to new startups in this space. 
And so we're seeing a tremendous year over year growth in that. And we're seeing some dynamic changes there. We're seeing uh, more of an emphasis on the greater Web3 sector. We're seeing a, a less of an interest in the DeFi sector, although I'd like to talk about that later because I think it's really interesting what we've seen from the CeFi world versus the DeFi world. DeFi has actually held up, and I think Ari alluded to this, is that when you have platforms that are run on smart contracts, you know, and you have the visibility and the immutability of blockchains, running and hiding is not as easy as you would with CeFi. But we are seeing a deceleration in DeFi or year over year. But yes, Web3 has definitely captured a lot of the attention out there. You've seen new deals uh, out there. There was a large one called Farcaster, which just raised a significant round, building a new version of Twitter for social media. Um, you also see Aptos. Based on Web3 uh, technology. Exactly. Um, you see Aptos out there, which is a, a new, what we call layer one blockchain, similar to Ethereum or to Solana or to uh, Avalanche. Aptos just raised another $150 million at over a billion dollar valuation when they just raised um, a, a significant round about four or five months ago. Um, so you're seeing large rounds getting completed at this raise. Um, what you're seeing from a grander, if you open up and kind of think about the larger venture perspective, there are some interesting things that we're seeing from the, the larger venture perspective is that there is a slowdown. And why is that? There's multiple different reasons. We alluded to that in terms of what's happening from the financial macro perspective in terms of rates and you know, kind of the, the volatility there. Um, but you're also seeing things like the IPO window. Um, virtually in Q, uh, quarter two of 2022, VC-backed list listings reached a 13-year quarterly low with only eight completed deals in, in all of Q2. And so the exit uh, is not necessarily what we were thinking of. And obviously you saw some of those happen you know, last year with Coinbase, et cetera, but they're not really as robust as they are right now. Um, and so we are seeing differences there in terms of sentiment. Um, we're seeing valuations come down, um, whereas this time last year, seed rounds in digital assets were raising around 35 to 45 million pre-money valuation. Now we're seeing that typically topping off around 20 million posts uh, mm. on the valuation side. Duration is also extending. Um, this time last year, deals were closing at about a two-week pace. Uh, it always felt very hot. You always felt if you didn't run your diligence and run your investment committees that you were going to miss out on these deals. Now that has elongated to typically about four to five weeks, uh, if not longer. Um, and so there's durational changes. There's valuation changes to the early side. But again, it's really interesting that in this asset class, we're not seeing a tremendous cut, you know, whereas Klarna, for instance, on the traditional venture side, got massively cut from around a $60 billion valuation to about an $8.5 billion valuation on their last raise. You're not seeing that tremendous cut down on, you know, the digital asset side. That That's could obviously happen. That's incredibly interesting, David, Did, as you discuss it, obviously, uh, your background uh, and what you do today is in private markets. It's fascinating to hear that uh, distinction between what we see in traditional venture and what's happening in the digital asset space. Really fascinating points. Talking of which, uh, here's a question that's to precisely that point. Comes to us from Ralph Humphreys from the Real Vision website. This is from one of our viewers. Uh, does David see or ex expect there to be a revaluation in portfolio companies given the market correction in tech? So precisely to that point, uh, what do you expect to see in terms of revaluation, if you expect to see revaluation, based on what's happening on uh, traditional uh, capital markets on the tech side? We aren't seeing a tremendous, and this is early. Again, obviously, the market has recalibrated over the last two and a half months with some of the events that you alluded to in the beginning of the show. 
we haven't seen a major recalibration in that yet. We've seen extensions as one of the primary sources here. So if a, if a company raised at say a 30 or $40 million pre-money valuation, uh, they raised a certain amount of capital, say $4 million, uh, and they're in the market right now because they need to hire some new developers, and some new engineers, maybe some business development folks. We're seeing that they're doing extensions, whereas the mark to market is basically the same at about 40 or 45 million pre. Uh, so we're seeing that instead of any major markdowns, we're not seeing any major run on major down rounds yet. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Very interesting. Uh, here's another question. This one's for Ari. Uh, what is the state of play with federal and state legislation in crypto? Because we're running out of time here, I want to transition this question into something that we've been talking about here, which is stable coins. Uh, obviously, we are still in this period where we're very much in the wake of the fallout from the Terra Luna collapse. Uh, Coindesk and The Block are reporting that new draft legislation is forthcoming for stable coins. Uh, Ari, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I mean, the answer to the initial question is there is so much going on. So glad that we can uh, keep it to stable coins uh, for a moment. Look, I think what, what's, what's been reported over the last few weeks is that we are going to see uh, draft language around sort of stable coin only regulation come out of the Financial Services Committee within the U.S. Congress. Uh, we're now hearing sort of more and more that full text is going to be delayed until after the August recess. Um, but we may see something in the coming days just to sort of get the conversation started. But look, I, I think sort of Pulling back a little bit, what 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 Terra really focused, the collapse of Terra really focused regulators on is sort of how to safely, uh, you know, how how to create a safe environment for consumers and investors in the stablecoin space specifically. And what that comes down to, in sort of all the, the the regulation or legislation that we're seeing globally, is a requirement that stablecoin issuers have reserves in whatever the stable asset is to support that 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 the issuance of that stablecoin. In other words, if it's U.S. dollar based, you should have U.S. dollars in reserves to support um, the, uh, the 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 uh, crypto asset. Um, and we're seeing that really globally. Look, uh, you know, we, we talk about a clear, comprehensive framework for crypto in the U.S. Uh, Senators Lummis and Gillibrand, uh, you know, unveiled a bill a few weeks ago that really sort of talks about all of these issues: stable coins, environmental, consumer protection. But right. we're a long way we're a long way off from that. So I think what we're seeing is a real focus on, all right, what can we get done today? Right. And there's a lot of, there's more and more consensus from industry uh, as well as from regulators around, uh, around stable coins in particular. So, so a long way off from this kind of comprehensive regulation that you were just talking about, uh, but specifically with the stablecoin regulation, one of the major stumbling blocks seems to be this question of whether or not the institutions offering stablecoins need to be FDIC insured uh, financial institutions, banks essentially. Can you give us a little bit of context on that and why it's important? Look, I mean, it, this has been an issue for some time when it comes to crypto. And I think, you know, uh, I thought David articulated this this really well when it comes to the markets and when it comes to businesses. They're looking for some legal clarity, right? And and, and so are consumers. And when you put your funds in an exchange, uh, you you want to ensure that you can get those funds out of an exchange. Uh, and that, that, that goes to whether that exchange is hacked, 
uh, or whether that exchange ultimately collapses like we saw or, or project collapses uh, like Terra. And I think the sort of one thing that came out of, you know, uh, the president's working group, which was really the first U.S. entity, at least, to really dig into sort of how to regulate potentially in the stablecoin space, they, they basically said just that. Stablecoin issuers should be treated as banks. Um, and FDIC-style insurance could potentially be a part of that. I will say just sort of like a little bit beyond your question, um, and that is, but we are seeing global regulators and, and, and uh, legislators move on this, right? We saw just two weeks ago, Mika, the Markets and Crypto Assets Bill, from the uh, agreement reached in the European Union, which is essentially what, what Lummis Gillibrand is, is a comprehensive framework that really came about because regulators were trying to get their hands around stablecoins in the wake of uh, Facebook's sort of Libra project from, from 2019. Um, it, took, it took two years to get that done. Um, we see the UK acting in the stablecoin space, sort of in, even in a little bit of a different way, clear reaction, clear reaction to Terra, and what they said is, look, if there's a collapse like we had here in the Terra instance, we want the Bank of England to potentially step in, uh, appoint an administrator, and then decide, all right, is this something where we're going to make consumers whole, or is this something that there's systemic, true systemic risk, sort of too big to fail, and we're going to have right. to ultimately prop up this project. But there's so much going on globally, but I think we're going to have to wait till September to really see what's coming from the U.S., I wanted to take a look at some charts here because this is some really interesting material, I think. So Keiko is reporting that USDT, uh, this is Tether, has finally recovered its peg after 68 days. You can see here on that chart, uh, obviously, that dramatic spike down when you see uh, the challenges that we had in Terra Luna. Uh, and obviously, that chart showing now finally recovering its full... Uh, close to a one-to-one -one correspondence with the U.S. dollar based on that chart. Uh, secondly, I wanted to look at some data from Masari. Uh, the total stablecoin market cap value has fallen, but not plunged, as you can see on that chart. Uh, obviously, the, the visual tells the story there. I wanted to bring this back into uh, David Nage's wheelhouse, obviously talking about these uh, issues of stablecoin regulation and regulation more broadly. As we head into the close of this show, David, your final thoughts on where we are in crypto markets right now, particularly relative to what we see happening and all the issues that we've covered here today uh, on the legal side, on the regulatory side specifically. I was uh, looking forward to that question, and it's, I'm going to put it into some context. I always like to look at the history of technology and the internet specifically. Um, many people have equated the last few months to Lehman Bear crisis or actually to the dot-com bubble. If you look at the dot-com bubble, one of the most infamous companies that drew the ire of public was pets.com. Um, as someone who has pets in our house, uh, we order every week from Chewy. Chewy is a multi-billion dollar company now. They print money every single day and they are basically the resource of any animal owner right now. Uh, if you look at social media, many of those that are listening that may not be as old as I or you may remember things like Friendster and MySpace. Um, but most of our kids now know Facebook or TikTok or Instagram. Um, and so there's been this big shift where I would say we're in a phase right now where we, we have, as a industry, over the last few years, have ushered in a tremendous amount of experimentation, especially from the DeFi world. We've seen lend and borrow facilities. We've seen AMMs. We've seen DEXs. We've seen yield farming strategies. Many of these have probably needed to stay under wraps for a longer period of time to 
focus on infrastructure, to focus on security, to focus on bug bounties and the such. Uh, but, you know, as a matter, we rushed in um, and that has happened. Um, and the experimentation has been out in the market. I think what we're going to see as a next phase here is we're going to see slower uh, build out. We're going to see infrastructure harden. We're going to see some of the things we talked about in terms of regulatory and policy be able to really give guidance and to give a GPS for the founders building tomorrow. And so I think we're in a place right now where we're going to go from that dot-com bubble to we see a number of companies become the Netflix, the PayPal's, the Amazon's, the Google's of the world. It's going to take a little time, though, but I think what we've seen right now is a very big learning phase for founders building for the future. Yeah, very elegantly said and well-framed. We're going to have to wait and see. Uh, Ari, final thoughts. Uh, I know we've covered a lot of ground here today, the criminal side, on the regulatory side, on the civil litigation side. Give us your final thoughts about where we are right now in crypto markets relative to all of what we've discussed. Yeah, no, and, and also just to to uh, lean in on on your compliment, David. That was beautifully said, and I hear a lot of, of conversations in this space on that on that topic. Look, I think the the big takeaway here is regulators globally are really uh, are really focused on this space right now, and um, you know you know whatever can get done, regulators are going to try to move and get done. And what we see here is in the stablecoin example is I think the reality that we're not going to see a comprehensive framework like Lummis Gillibrand or like Mika in the US over the next course of the next year or so. So we're focused on stable coins. And I, I think we're, start, we're going to start to see that. But I think there's sort of one other takeaway from this and what we see from the SEC action and even DOJ is, look, until we see a comprehensive framework and still, until we see definitions from uh, Congress, uh, we are going to see continued sort of you know, regulation by enforcement action. And um, I, I think that that is sort of the takeaway from the last few weeks is that DOJ, Treasury, SEC are going to continue to take action um, as we await sort of more uh, a, a clearer legal framework. All right, David, excellent conversation. Thank both of you for joining us. Thank you, Thank so, you so much, much for having us. That's it for this week's show. Remember, you can keep the conversation going in the comments section on the exchange and on our Pro Crypto Discord server. Starting this week, Real Vision Daily Briefing Crypto, or Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing, I should say, uh, will be three times a week, same time, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7.30 p.m. in India, and 10 p.m. in Hong Kong. That's every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday on Real Vision. Expect more changes to the format and deeper dives into major crypto themes. See you next time. Thanks for watching, everyone. Thank you.